This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today is hypertension and the new hypertension treatment guidelines. Hypertension is extremely common in our society, affecting nearly one in every three individuals in the United States. And the treatment of hypertension is the most common reason for office visits of non-pregnant adults to healthcare providers and the most common reason for use of prescription medications. Our guest today is Dr. Gary Schwartz, a consultant in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. And we'll be discussing the evaluation and management of hypertension. Welcome, Gary. Glad to be here. Late in 2017... Uh, we received some new treatment guidelines from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association. What was new in those guidelines uh, compared to our uh, previous guidelines? Yeah, I, I want to emphasize, uh, firstly, that um, this is a very comprehensive guideline. It's a very good reference source for hypertension in general. Um, having said that, uh, there are four kind of major uh, new um, areas uh, with these guidelines that differ from earlier guidelines. The first is, I think, this emphasis on pl proper blood pressure measurement in the office and the emphasis of the use of out-of-office measures, both to confirm the diagnosis and to adjust therapy to reach the goal. The second new difference is that we have a new classification of blood pressure for adults. Um, in the previous classification, normal blood pressure was less than 120 over 80, and that's still the case in this new classification. In the previous classification, patients with systolic blood pressures between 120 and 139 or diastolics between 80 uh, and 89 uh, were designated as having prehypertension. Uh, there was an acknowledgment that those blood pressures were not normal, um, and uh, they should be uh, considered for intervention, but not high enough to put a patient individually at risk to warrant treatment, especially with drugs. Uh, and an emphasis was placed on those for lifestyle modifications associated with lower blood pressure. Hypertension was defined as a systolic of 140 or greater or a diastolic of 90 or greater. Now, in the new guidelines, they've abandoned the term prehypertension. So normal blood pressure is less than 120 systolic and less than 80 diastolic. For patients whose systolic blood pressure is between 120 and 129 and diastolic is less than 80, they've given these people the designation of having elevated blood pressure. Okay, For patients who have a systolic between 130 and 139, a diastolic between 80 and 89, uh, this used to be, again, within the prehypertensive range in the old guidelines. That is now uh, stage one hypertension. So hypertension now is defined as a systolic of 130 or greater or a diastolic of 80 or greater. And that's a big change. Um, it's going to increase the prevalence of hypertension from 32% of the population to about 46%, almost half of the adult population will now carry a diagnosis of hypertension. And what was stage one hypertension, which is a, a systolic of 140, diastolic of 90 or greater up to 160, systolic up to 100 diastolic, that's now stage two hypertension in these new guidelines. So that's a big, big change. 
The third uh, change in these guidelines is the criteria that we are asked to use to decide when we should use drug therapy to treat hypertension. And that's based both on the level of blood pressure as well as on a global estimate of cardiovascular risk. So it's a risk-based decision-making process. And they've asked us to use the ACC-AHA risk calculator to determine an individual's 10-year risk for cardiovascular disease event. If it's 10% or greater, then the threshold for drug therapy is a systolic of 130 or greater or a diastolic of 80 or greater. In patients with known cardiovascular disease, uh, that same threshold holds true. For older patients, those are 65 years of age or older, just by age, who have systolic hypertension, the threshold for drug therapy, again, is a systolic of 130 or greater. Uh, and for patients who are, are known to be at high risk, that is, uh, patients with chronic kidney disease, diabetics, again, the threshold for drug therapy is 130 systolic, 80 uh, diastolic or higher. And then the final uh, uh, difference between previous guidelines is the target of therapy, which is now less than 130 over less than 80, literally for everyone, regardless of your age, regardless of your cardiovascular risk or your comorbidity. This is kind of a universal one-size-fits-all goal now. We know that elderly patients are more prone to orthostatism and I guess I'm concerned that if we're being overly or increasingly aggressive in managing their blood pressure, are, are we going to have an increased frequency of orthostatic falls and uh, resulting fractures? Yeah, so that is, a, that is a concern. These guidelines have received some criticism, and there's certainly some controversy surrounding them. And this very aggressive um, threshold and goal blood pressure for older individuals has received a lot of um, back and forth uh, in the literature, um, in editorials, and the like. Um, the decisions uh, that we've, or the changes that I've just discussed in these new guidelines um, are the result in at least, I think, great part to the SPRINT trial, which is a, was a very large treatment trial that was federally funded that enrolled patients age 50 or older who are at high cardiovascular risk and randomized them to either a systolic goal of less than 140 or a systolic goal of less than 120. And uh, in this cohort, they deliberately enrolled a group of patients who were 75 years of age or older. Uh, this study was stopped early uh, because of benefit uh, in those patients who were um, randomized to the more aggressive goal of less than 120. And the subgroup of patients who are 75 years of age or older seemed to benefit with a reduction in cardiovascular events and in mortality by being treated to this lower goal. Now, there's a lot of issues related to this trial that people have brought up um, as reasons not to generalize the results of SPRINT to the, to the U.S. elderly population as a whole and uh, that those are complex and there's a lot of them. Um, but having said that, that is one of the reasons why the ACCHA has adopted this more aggressive posture of treating hypertension in older patients. Uh, but I must say that uh, the American uh, Academy of Family Practice and the American College of Physicians 
produced a, a guideline for the treatment of hypertension in older individuals that was published uh, late or early last year. Uh, and in that uh, guideline, they did consider the SPRINT results in conjunction with other results. And they came to a very different conclusion about thresholds and goals for older people. In their guideline, they've recommended that for people 65 or older, uh, that the threshold for treatment is a systolic of 150 or greater, and the goal should be to lower it to less than 150. And in elderly patients who are considered at high risk for cardiovascular events or have had a previous stroke or TIA, uh, then the goal of blood pressure could be uh, working toward a systolic of less than 140. So that's very different than what the ACCHA has recommended. And I must say the American Academy of Family Practice has not endorsed the uh, ACCAHA guidelines. So this is an area of controversy. I think uh, on the ground physicians who take care of a lot of elderly patients um, recognize uh, the potential hazards of overaggressive treatment. We recognize that in these clinical trials, there's a selection process for patients. They oftentimes don't truly reflect the usual type of patient we see in practice. These patients are very carefully followed. In the SPRINT trial, they were seen monthly. They had orthostatic checks at every visit. They excluded patients from participation if they had orthostatic hypotension or significant drops when they were screened for participation in the trial. So this was a very selected group. And uh, that's true for many clinical trials, that there's a difference in the people we see every day in practice and those that participated in the trials. So we just have to remember that these are guidelines and we need to individualize our patients and our recommendations regarding treatment. So let's turn to treatment of hypertension. Uh, not all patients want and not all need pharmacologic treatment for hypertension. What are some of the non-pharmacologic treatments we have available? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> hypertension really is a phenomenon of the modern era. Uh, if we look at unacculturated societies, uh, hunter-gatherer societies, uh, hypertension doesn't exist. It, it literally doesn't exist. But we live in a world where we overeat, we under-exercise, we eat way too much salt, we don't eat enough potassium, we don't exercise, and we're paying the price uh, with this very, very high prevalence of hypertension which, as you've stated at the beginning, is really the, the, the most common modifiable cardiovascular risk factor uh, that we deal with. So um, those strategies that have been associated with the lower blood pressure include weight loss in those who are overweight or obese. And ide achieving ideal body weight would be the goal. We know that that's not practical for many people. Uh, but even a weight loss as, as small as 5 or 10 pounds can lower blood pressure. We do ask people uh, to moderate their salt intake. Um, the American Heart Association recommends limiting dietary sodium intake to less than 1,500 milligrams. Um, I would say between 1,500 and 2,300 milligrams. Uh, but even if you can't achieve that, to reduce the amount of sodium you're eating by about 1,000 milligrams from whatever level you're at can be very helpful. Increasing dietary potassium intake um, is new in this guideline. It's been recognized that um, higher potassium intakes are associated with lower blood pressure uh, in a variety of study uh, uh, studies that are out there. 
Uh, in general, if you eat a low-sodium diet, you tend to eat a high-potassium diet because you're shifting away from a meat-based diet to a more plant-based diet. Um, regular exercise, uh, they would recommend 75 to 150 minutes of aerobic exercise where you bring your heart rate up to 75% of its predicted maximum. Um, again, it's a good way to, uh, to control your blood pressure. Um, in terms of diet, eating a healthy diet, uh, we've talked about sodium restriction, potassium enhancement, uh, but the dietary approaches to stop hypertension or DASH diet has been recommended for patients with high blood pressure. This is a diet that was used in a very large study of patients with uh, borderline or stage one hypertension. And compared to the control diet, patients who followed the DASH eating plan had about an 11 over 5 millimeter mercury drop in their blood pressure. That's what we typically see with any of the monotherapy drugs for the treatment of hypertension. Mayo Clinic offers national and international courses. Network with your colleagues at an upcoming Mayo Clinic CME conference. Visit ce.mayo.edu and register today. All right, let's turn to medications. You mentioned monotherapy. So once a decision has been made to start a medication, where should we start? Um, are there recommendations for uh, initial monotherapy? Yes. So uh, the ACCHA is really consistent with other guidelines from Canada, Europe, and elsewhere in, in previous JNC, uh, the JNC-8 document, uh, that the preferred drug classes for the initial treatment of hypertension are the thiazide-like diuretics, uh, the calcium uh, channel blocking drugs, or the ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. So we're asked to choose uh, a drug from one of those uh, three classes of uh, medications, unless there is a compelling indication for uh, an alternative. Um, and which of these classes you use is less well-defined. We know that in general, for example, blacks tend to respond better in general uh, to monotherapies uh, with diuretics or with calcium antagonists. Whites tend to respond um, in general better with the uh, ACE inhibitor or the ARB class of drugs as monotherapy. Once we get into combination therapies, those racial and ethnic differences sort of disappear. We know that in general, older uh, patients tend to respond a little bit better to the ACE inhibitor or ARB class as monotherapy, and younger individuals tend to respond uh, better to the ACE inhibitor or ARB class of drugs. I noticed that you didn't mention beta blockers. Yeah, it's interesting. Beta blockers have now been eliminated as initial agents of choice in most of the guidelines, um, including the recent ACCHA guidelines, unless, again, there's a compelling indication for their use. That's driven in part uh, by the fact that when you look at all the clinical trials that uh, used beta blockers as a monotherapy choice, uh, their ability to protect patients from cardiovascular events was less uh, than uh, when patients were on these other classes of agents. That's especially true for the outcome of stroke. They seem to be inferior in protecting from stroke compared to these other classes. For that reason, they've been designated really as uh, second-line agents to be used in patients who are intolerant um, uh, or these other agents have been ineffective, or uh, if they have a condition other than hypertension that might also be benefited by the drug. For example, if they have coronary artery disease and angina, uh, if they have severe migraine headaches, some comorbidity where, for example, a beta blocker would be appropriate. Is it better to push 
monotherapy to its maximum dose, or are patients better off taking more than one at a lower dose? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the dose response curve for most of our antihypertensive agents is relatively flat. Uh, we get most of the antihypertensive effect with moderate doses of all of these agents. There are a few exceptions. And for many of these drugs, there are, dose there are side effects to pay as you go up uh, with the dose. That's especially true with, for example, diuretics. It's also true for the calcium antagonist drugs, not so much for the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs. Um, studies have looked at, at this issue, and uh, going from a moderate dose to a high dose of any of these single agents has uh, really only a very small further uh, effect on blood pressure lowering. But again, for those classes that have side effects related to them, one, the side effect profile increases dramatically. Adding a second drug to a first, uh, if you're doing it properly, has an additive effect and is usually two or three times greater than the effect of going up on the dose of the agent that you've chosen. So um, I think most hypertension specialists will use a monotherapy to a moderate dose, but before going to a maximum dose, they would add a second agent. When we're talking about combination therapy, are there some drugs that are work quite well with another class? Yeah, so again, in the guidelines, uh, if the patient doesn't respond to a monotherapy, whichever one has been chosen, they ask us to use one of the other two classes of these three classes, either in two or three drug combinations. So diuretics work very well with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. Calcium antagonists work very well with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, diuretics and calcium blockers as a two-drug combination is probably less effective. Uh, and uh, so I would use either diuretic ACE-ARB combination or calcium channel blocker ACE-ARB combination for two-drug combinations and then add uh, the, um, uh, the diuretic in as a third drug if it's not used as part of that two-drug combination. Now, uh, we do know, I've been along for a long time, that there was a time when the diuretic beta blocker combination was a very, very common two-drug combination. And in fact, it's very effective. It does lower blood pressure. And there's nothing wrong with that two-drug uh, combination in selected patients who may have side effects to some of these other drugs and, and the like. So that still is there and should be considered in certain patients. Well, let's finish up with uh, one last topic, and that's that of secondary hypertension. It doesn't come up that often, but <clears throat> what should be what 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 should we be watching for uh, in order to raise our suspicion of a patient having secondary hypertension? Yeah. So, <clears throat> one should keep in mind that secondary causes of hypertension, at least the traditional ones. Um, aren't terribly common. Maybe 5 to 10 percent of the adult population uh, with hypertension, if looked for, would have an underlying secondary cause. Um, the way I do it is I keep in my mind the typical story of a patient with essential hypertension. As, and as much as the history, the physical findings, the laboratory studies, et cetera, differ from that uh, story of essential hypertension, my titer of concern for a possible secondary cause goes up. So just to keep in mind the typical story of a patient with essential hypertension. Generally, there's a family history. We know there's a genetic component to it. So if you ask them, is there anyone in the family with hypertension, you'll get a positive response. 
Um, hypertension usually presents when people are in their late 30s to late 40s, sometime in that time range. Generally, when it's discovered, it's mild to moderately elevated. It's not severely elevated. Usually, the physical examination is, is normal. The laboratory studies are normal. They may have elevated lipids, this and that, but they don't have evidence of target organ injury from the high blood pressure. They don't have left ventricular hypertrophy on the electrocardiogram. They don't have an elevated creatinine with proteinuria, et cetera. Uh, so the laboratory studies and the physical findings are normal, and usually patients are asymptomatic. They're really not complaining of much uh, that you would relate to the elevated blood pressure. And their blood pressure can generally be controlled with a combination of lifestyle changes and one or at most two drugs. So is, is that, and, and once brought under control, the blood pressure remains under control. It does not change very much over time. So in as much as, as, as there's a story that differs from that and how much it differs from that, uh, you should be concerned about a secondary cause. So what, what are uh, common situations that might want, make you want to work a patient up further? Onset at an unusual age. Onset of hypertension when somebody's in a teenager or in their early 20s or even early 30s. Or the sudden onset of particularly diastolic hypertension in somebody over the age of 55 or 60. Very uncommon. Hypertension that suddenly changes its personality. It's one from being well controlled on one or two drugs to uh, accelerated to much higher levels. Patients who present with accelerated or malignant hypertension. Uh, and then, of course, uh, patients who have obvious uh, symptoms that may direct you to a specific form of hypertension. Spells where the blood pressure goes up. Uh, with headaches or sweats or palpitations, patients who have abnormal lab studies, uh, hypokalemia that's unexplained, new onset diabetes, uh, and the like, uh, all should be considered for the possibility of a secondary form of hypertension. We've been discussing hypertension in the new hypertension treatment guidelines with Dr. Gary Schwartz from the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Schwartz is a frequent speaker at our many continuing medical education courses, including practice of internal medicine, clinical reviews, and selected topics in internal medicine. Thank you for your time, Gary. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, we invite you to subscribe. Mayo Clinic delivers more CME offerings nationwide. Find your next conference at ce.mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Stay healthy and see you next week.